Hello and welcome to HIPod, Essential Listening for the Healthcare Business. My name is Ploy Radford and I'm the editor of Health Investor UK. This episode features a recording of a panel session from the Health Investor Summit 2017, titled Making the Grade, the Impact of CQC Reports. The panel, which consisted of Andrew Cannon, Chief Executive of Voyage Care, Sam Gray, partner at Apposite Capital, Bavna Keen Rao, Director at BKR Care Consultancy, Marguerite Mulvey, Head of Healthcare at AIB, and Dr Claire Royston, Group Medical Director at Four Seasons Healthcare Group, discussed the systems required to help services pass muster, the role of the CQC, and the impact of ratings on investments. Great. Um, so we're now moving on from uh, care home development hotspots to making the grade, the impact of CQC reports. Um, perhaps to, to kick off, I could uh, ask each member of the panel to just quickly introduce themselves and their company, uh, starting, starting with you, Andrew. Uh, thanks, Ploy. My name is Andrew Cannon. I'm the chief exec of Voyage Care. We're the largest provider of registered care for people with learning disability in the UK. We run uh, over 300 homes and in total in about 500 locations. We care for 3,500 people or so at any one time, a team of about 10,000. And as of today, uh, 95, nearly 96% of those services were good or outstanding. Hi, Sam Gray. I'm a partner at Apposite Capital. We're a specialist investor in healthcare, both in the UK but also in, in Europe. And really, we divide healthcare into four areas, uh, which are healthcare services, social care services, health IT, and what we call medical products, which can be things like medical equipment or medical devices as well as pharmaceuticals and, and things like that. I think unlike some investors, we're reasonably agnostic about deal structures and sizes. What we're really looking for are healthcare value, value creation opportunities where the investment case is driven by the business model and the growth in the business model. Um, sometimes that's as a niche business with a, a disruptive and, and, and different model. Um, sometimes it may be a, a more traditional sort of investment strategy, but it's always around growth. Um, so we've got a number of businesses in this fund and in previous funds in, in the social and healthcare sectors in the UK, uh, and that has really spanned the spectrum from you know, fostering right through to uh, Cancer Partners UK, which was delivering uh, sort of high-acuity radiotherapy services in, in, in the private sector. Bafna Rao, BKR Care Consultancy. Um, my background is Care, um, Care Quality Commission. Uh, We've been working as independent consultants now for eight years. Uh, we run various care homes. We become nominated individuals for services that need to be stabilized. We don't own uh, care homes. We work with three large hospitals, two primary care trusts, uh, do mock inspections, work with solicitors and banks on improvement. And I am chair of a charity uh, based in Oxford, RESEC, and also I am a trustee for the National uh, Ethics Commission, International Care Ethics Commission. Hi, I'm Marguerite Mulvey. Uh, I head up the healthcare sector for Allied Irish Bank at both corporate level and a national level. Um, AIB, I think it's fair to say, has been involved in healthcare for a number of years. Um, I like to say long before my time. 
Um, but uh, we have a dedicated, focused um, approach to healthcare throughout the country, and we have healthcare specialists in all the major uh, locations, um, north, south, and in the Midlands. Hi, I'm Claire Royston. I'm the Group Medical Director of Four Seasons Healthcare, which allows me to wear three hats. So I have um, the Four Seasons Group largely operating state-funded care homes uh, in the hundreds, uh, the Brighter Kind Hat, which is a, a self-funded uh, care home business, and the, the specialist mental health hospital group, the Hunter Coon Group. Of relevance to the question today, I'm probably the most regulated woman in the country. Because <laughs> as a group medical director, I'm the NI for the CQC, the NI for the Care Inspectorate, the NIQ for the RQIA, and for my sins, the NI for the CSSIW, which is relevant because that's four different regulators with four very different approaches. Well, um, thank you very much. Uh, perhaps as, as the most regulated woman in the UK, we could start with <laughs> the most well-behaved woman in the UK. I'd like to point that out. Um, as you obviously oversee from many different subsectors within um, the Four Seasons Group, I mean, how do you? What systems should you have in place, and how do you cater to the fact that you have different different subsectors, as some more robust than others? How, how do you how do you cross that hurdle? I, I think that's an almost unanswerable question, Florian, at the moment, and I think many of us who are providers are, are grappling with this difficulty. Because if, if, you, if you operate the premise that actually old people and vulnerable people in care homes are the same everywhere in the UK, it is remarkable how different it is to be regulated by the different regulators. But if we were to stay with the CQC, because that's what you've got on your board, I think the issue there... Um, is the confusion about what systems you need to have in place if you are going to be regulated in the cross-section. So the CQC are going to come in today and see what they see and make a decision on the two above the bar and two below the bar versus a tendency for them, particularly if you are below the bar, to think longitudinally about regulation. And, and that inherent conflict means that the systems you have to have in place are really quite different to get, aware, get over those two different problems. So that's one set of comments. The other comments I would have is that irrespective of whatever system you have, there's a critical point in ensuring that the people in the care home can articulate that system. Because what, even a really good system with bed-to-board visibility, you know, robust governance that ticks every governance criteria in the universe, if the people in the care home, the support workers, the folk in the housekeeping and the nurses and the manager, if they can't articulate it, you are going to be poorly regulated. And, and perhaps, Andrew, I mean, you came from Bupa where you're dealing with care homes and mm. now you're with specialist care. How, how is that sort of difference? Have you noticed a big difference in the sort of systems you have to put in place? Uh, yes and no, really. I think it's building on the point Claire made about robust governance and what you need to have. I think you can make a strong case for systems, for uh, distillation of key lines of inquiry so that people understand it. Um, I think recruitment and recruiting the right people is incredibly important, and the systems that are set up to allow you to do that, um, to do it on values. You know, we can't compete on wages with a lot of other organizations, so you have to get the people for whom delivering care has meaning and purpose and nobility and distinguish yourself on that. Um, I come back to cultures, though. You know, if we had, we've got 300-plus locations, 500 locations, 300-plus services, if we had the 300 best um, managers in the country, it wouldn't, the rest wouldn't matter. It would all take care of itself, right? It's easier said than done, but managers are the guardians of standards. Mm. Absolutely. And for me, the way I approach it, both at Bupa and at, and at Voyage Care, is that um, 
is around collapsing hierarchies and how that manifests itself at culture is. You know, every one of the senior management team or the, the six senior members of the executive committee is on call. One weekend is six, so I'm on call. So I hear all the problems that go on in that weekend. Um, each of us gets a copy of where something goes wrong and it's a high or a very high rating in terms of uh, medication er error or challenging behavior. Uh, every one of the senior team spends at least a week working service every year as a support worker. Um, everyone is expected to spend a day a week in service and understanding what are systemic problems, what are individual service problems. The whole thing is geared around collapsing hierarchies, being clear on what your purpose is, and going where the work gets done. So for me, that's, 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 n that's never different anywhere you are. Mm. And I mean, there can be sort of a feeling from talking to people in the sector that perhaps CQC goes too far in its remit and what, what it tries to do, perhaps from, from any, any, anyone on the panel who can, can answer this, but is there a feeling that there is too much, too much regulation happening in the sector and is it detracting from people being able to actually do their daily jobs of running, running an efficient care service? Sam, you're at me. <laughs> I, I, I think it's very fair to say that the, the CQC result, the report, is, is at the end of the cycle. If you've got to the point of having a negative CQC uh, inspection, it's because the culture's gone wrong, the employee sort of training satisfaction, engagement has gone wrong. That's led probably to high churn, high agency, all the problems we, we, we talk about all the time. Um, and that obviously causes a quality problem that causes a CQC problem. And throwing resources at fixing the CQC problem with systems or, or whatever it may be is a short-term fix if you haven't fixed anything else. And you can do it because CQC is largely about you know, ticking boxes and having reports and filing and processes. Uh, and you can do that by throwing resources at it over a short time period and you can temporarily you know, perhaps improve. But if you haven't actually started at the top with the culture and, and worked through all the other things, the, the problems are going to recur. And so I think it can be a distraction because people do fight fires and they have to fight fires. You have to rectify your CQC issues. Um, but you can't let that distract you from you know, fundamentally the, the culture and the values uh, from the top of the organization. Mm -hmm. I, I, if I may build on that, I mean, every, everybody would take as a truism, I, th I think, you can't inspect quality into a system. You can't stand at the end of the production line and inspect quality into that. You have to build it in, you have to design it in. I mean, for us, 95, 96% good and outstanding is just a proxy. That's, 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 that's not good enough for, for us and for me. I think we should be doing something much more meaningful around why are we really here? How do we make a difference to people's lives? How do we help them have a rich and fulfilling life and deliver wonderful care and support? Um, you know, weighing the baby is not the same as feeding the baby, right? So this is a different thing. Um, I think they do have a role to play. I'd like them to play an expanded role in market oversight. So the role CQC currently playing market oversight is looking at large provider failure. That's not a market, that's the supply side. You know, I'd mm. like them to play a much bigger role in how a service is being commissioned, how a service is being funded, how sustainable really are. I mean, that's you know, one of the provisions of the CARE Act, is the market sustainable. So I'd like them to play a slightly different and more adjacent role. But for me, it's a, it's a, it's a minimum bar. And as Sam said, you know, it's, it's the end of the process. It's too late then. Yeah. Can I also go ahead? Go on. I was going to say, I, I, I think it's time to have a more sophisticated dialogue with the regulator, because I think they've done a good job for where we've got to. But now we, we ha we're running the risk of getting uh, actions having unintended consequences. So the CQC crunch their data, and they believe that the most important person is having a registered home manager. 
actually we would articulate, we would say that the most important thing is to have a positive culture, which yes is set by the home manager. But if there's an over-dependence that if you haven't got a home manager, computer says you will be requires improvement. And if you haven't had a home manager for six months, computer says you will be inadequate. That is such an unsophisticated way to look at it because there's a tendency then for a, a, a poor provider to keep a home manager in place, keep them registered so they get those points on the scorecard, even if they know that that's the wrong person, even that that person is singularly failing to support that home, that positive culture, simply because they want those points when they're inspected. And the opportunity to have a more informed and uh, we're all in this together conversation doesn't exist. So for example, you can't, as a good provider, what you would want is to have a, 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 a subs bench of people who you know are good home managers who are acceptable to the standards of the CQC. So if for whatever reason a home manager is not able to sustain the quality and culture in the home, before it gets to be a problem, you want to be able to sub them without getting the negative points of, you changed the home manager in this home four times in two years, Dr. Royston. Well, yes, because we hadn't got the right person. But that, so I think it's about engaging with them now to say, you got us through to this stage with regulation, you've inspected us all, more or less. If we want to grow and sustain quality, we need to have a more uh, detailed and sophisticated way of approaching the way you're regulating us, I moving into other areas and doing these sorts of things. I do think that we have to think about the role of the regulator as well. I mean, first of all, we've tried, you know, self-regulation doesn't work, so we do need a regulator but it's a very subjective regulation at the moment. We have a service, we work at service in administration. Technically, shouldn't be outstanding. We've got an outstanding in that service. So it's subjective, it's about the system. But it's on the day which inspector comes in, the staff on duty, who's yeah. around, what they say, what they show. And I think it's, that's surely very subjective, especially if we're providing the provide information returns. Surely that should lend some sort of evidence and then there are other ways of getting that information and gathering yeah. it and I don't think that happens no, so, I and agree. I think that is a challenge and David Bean himself has said that he's got a number of inspectors who are not experienced in the care sector going out inspecting how do you balance that mm. then so I think there are challenges and we've got more and more care homes going towards requires improvement again that's a tension and balance you know what does that mean is it controlled drugs or is it just a tick on a mar chart? Mm. So it's those things that I think we need to tease out. And the regulator does need to have an adult conversation. Exactly. That's, I think that's right. Because inconsistency in regulation doesn't help any of us. And it confuses the end user. It confuses families. It confuses people who live in services. How do you feel if your home is suddenly rated requires improvement when it was good? Does that mean mum's going to be having a worse day today? I think it's time for that engagement between us and the regulator to say what must we collectively do because I 100% agree we have to be regulated and it, it's the way that regulation moves forward over the next two to five years I think is critical. So I mean the CQC has brought out a series of reports sort of gauging who's got how, how sort of percentages of who's required improvement poor etc and you know they've highlighted in every subsector that hardly anyone's got outstanding and bearing in mind your comments about the inspectors being subjective, how important actually is it to a provider, to an investor, when they're looking at a business, whether there is an outstanding rating against it? I mean, how much do you take that into regard, given that you know how subjective it can be? 
and that that doesn't necessarily reflect a, a financially functioning business. Um, Marguerite, perhaps. I mean, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, when we're assessing credit and when we're looking at operators, to me, um, it's interesting that over the last number of years, clearly, the whole regulatory aspect has become a key aspect of our analysis. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fair to say that we look at these reports in, in terms of, I guess, the reflection we see it, that it has on the management of the businesses. Um, we don't shy away from um, operators who may have uh, requires improvement equally where you have outstanding that again to us is a reflection of very strong management in a business. Um, I think for us it's very important for us to see and we actually place a lot of um, weight on the regulatory and, and the governance that um, an operator has in place. And that ties in, I think, a lot with, with what the panel have already been you know, saying. If they've got the right controls in place, they've got the right staff in place, the right management, and, and the right reporting systems in place, that's where we would take a lot of comfort. And whether that leads to an outstanding, um, at times you said, you know, if, if it requires improvement, we acknowledge that there's a lot of tick boxing that goes on um, with the CQC. But for us, it's really getting behind um, what the management is actually doing with the business, how they're dealing with action plans for maybe less performing units. Um, and I think what's critical to us as well, that as a bank, that we're um, aware of issues that um, may, operators may have across their portfolios or in homes. Um, and in, in, that, in that we're aware of them, we're obviously reliant on the management and how they're addressing it, and that's where we really take our comfort. Mm. No, I would 100% agree. I think it's about uh, having governance processes to drive the experience of the residents and the families and the, your colleagues rather than having a governance process that ticks your regulator's box, which I think the two things are quite different. If you've got the first, you will get in a better place with the latter. We're doing a lot more training with banks at the moment on what kind of things that they should be looking at. Whenever there's a requires improvement, we've been called in, um, you know, just to give a temperature check to see is it sustainable. Is there a more endemic issues? Because now CQC are saying if you've got two requires improvement one after another, then the service may well go into special measures. Now that's going to have a huge impact. So we don't want banks to be nervous when they're lending money or penalising the providers who may well have just got themselves into a poor documentation weren't robust enough or whatever. So it's actually checking the report and what does it say. Mm -hmm. Sam, from an investor point of view. Well, quality is, is absolutely essential to Apposite. We, we, we genuinely you know, believe that the businesses with the highest quality are the businesses that build differentiation barriers to entry uh, will do well um, for all, all the right reasons. So. You know, that for us, not just CQC reports, but quality throughout the organization is, is, is really key. But that doesn't mean that we just invest in businesses that have outstanding ratings. If we, if we did that, we would have a very small universe of, of potential investments. Um, I mean, we, 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 we like businesses that have outstanding throughout and great management teams. But actually, if you invest in, a say, a small owner-managed business in a local region that has an outstanding rating, and your intention and the business plan is to scale that nationally, that's actually a challenge unto itself because the dynamics of having a, a local owner who can pop around and know every single carer and uh, resident or, or, or person by name is very different to the, the structures and, and quality systems you need if you're a national business. So 
know, with By the Bridge, that was a foster care business we invested in out of our previous fund. That was that sort of dynamic. It was founded by a, a foster carer. It was a one office locally. She knew everybody. And then we had to you know, scale that nationally. It grew very quickly at times. And you know, maintaining the culture that protected the quality was, it was a real, uh, you know, one of the things we had to focus most on. Um, on the other hand, we've invested in businesses that are not universally outstanding. Um, and you know, where we've gone in knowing that a large part of the business case is about improving the quality. Um, and there, I think, the, 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 I think you've got to have confidence in your management team's ability to do that. Um, you've got to have confidence that there are building blocks there within the business. It's not you know, universally awful, but that you know, they may have lost their way in certain areas, and with a good management team, with a good plan, you'll be able to fix it. But I think you also need your eyes wide open to the fact that's going to take resource. Um, you can't just have a, a sort of you know, quality function that comes in, tells everyone they're awful, and then goes away. You have to support the regional management. Um, you've got to provide you know, specialist, report, uh, specialist support around recruitment, if that's part of the issue, or behavioral support, if, if that's part of the issue, training. Uh, and that takes time, and it takes money. Um, so you, I think as long as you have your eyes open to that when you, when you make the investment and are willing to, to put in the hard yards, then you know, it's a, a huge value creation opportunity to continue to improve the quality of a business from investment through to exit. Um, is CCTV the answer to helping making the grade with the, with the regulator? Andrew, would you put CQC in your hands? Uh, CCTV, we'll probably put CQC <laughs> in as well. I can't stop CQC coming in the hands. Um, <laughs> would you put CCTV in? I, I, I mean, it comes down to consent. Um, um, lots, of, lots of studies, interesting recently, around what happens where, when um, police wear vest cameras and, and observation of behaviour and stuff. For me, it comes down to consent. Um, obviously, that would represent quite a significant investment, but um, it depends on what you're trying to do and, and what you're seeking to measure, really, I think. Um, you know, from, from our perspective around quality and how investors, investors look at it, we raised, um, we refinanced our bond quite recently, so we raised £250 million in May. And I got a very strong sense that it was a gating item for people, but once they'd moved on, they didn't want to talk about it. You feel like going, no, 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 let's spend a lot longer talking about it. You don't know how hard it is. This occupies my entire kind of psychic space all day, every day. Um, I think people sort of... Um, understand intuitively that poor quality costs more and it costs an awful lot of money to put it right and to mm. dig yourself out. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it conveniently fits financial models that are, that are seeking to understand return on capital and, 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 and sustainability of EBITDA and earnings, etc. So, so I, I, I get what people say and everybody talks about wanting high quality investments and high quality assets. For me, there is something of a conflict there. And, and also this sector doesn't function like a lot of other sectors. So there is no incentive for us to be outstanding rather than good. If you're fully occupied, you know, there isn't, you don't, you don't see that in fees. That doesn't manifest itself for the most part. Um, just as in, you know, learning disability is slightly different from aged care, which is we're commissioned to provide hours of care. So there's actually a disincentive to be efficient in that sense because any efficiencies go back to mm. the funder. So, you know, the sector doesn't function like a lot of others. And, um, for me, that's those, those kind of bits where they meet or where the challenges really, really are. Mm. Mm. Can I? Yeah. yeah. 
I was going to say, following on from Kieran's point, that you know it is about having those conversations and actually talking to the relatives, the residents, all the stakeholders, and it's finding out why are we talking about CCTV? What what purpose will it serve? Is it to enhance quality? Or are we reducing <coughs> staff um, resources? So do we have enough staff on duty? What happens? Uh, there's an interesting article this morning about the artificial intelligence and robots being used as well. I'm fascinated to see how all of that works out. I mean, it is about monitoring, but why we're doing it and how we do it. Oh, I, I can hear a horse in the room. I have a real horse problem, a hobby horse about um, uh, CCTV. I am 100% clear that putting CCTV in is, is not the way to drive good quality. What you want is a positive culture like we've spoken about. And one of the byproducts of CCTV is that whether, however you sell it in, your colleagues will think you're spying on them. Yes. And that is not the substrate of building a positive culture. I would argue that if you've got that positive culture that we've all articulated in a different way, CCTV will be redundant. If you're going to give me 50p to invest in technology, there is way more interesting technology to invest in than, than CCTV. I get off the horse now. <laughs> um, does anyone from the floor have any questions for our panel? The mic's coming over. Come on, James, jog a little bit. <laughs> Thanks. I've got a question for Babner, actually. I know about a, a home down the southwest um, that sold very recently for above its asking price, and I know you were involved in increasing its uh, rating from requires improvements to outstanding. Two questions. One, was it an easy task to do that? And two, do you think that resulted in the price being achieved being higher? It was a difficult one because I think the home was in administration. People didn't want to touch it. There were lots of issues. We called it our affectionately our eBay home. So we were able to buy lots of bits and pieces for uh, making the decor a bit more pleasant. The staff were engaged. They really wanted to keep the home going. We were really open up front with them. So we had to invest a lot of time initially. But once we were able to do that and we got the managers in, on board and we got the nurses around in the hospitals on board to provide us with X number of shifts. So we were really creative, talking to the nurses at the hospitals. We would train them, revalidation, et cetera, if they came and picked up a couple of shifts at the home. So our agency costs went down significantly. So difficult, manageable, and it was such fun once we got going because the relatives and the residents were really engaged in it. So that was fun. And yes, we did have to put our case to the administrator saying, please don't sell it at, the, at this stage while it requires improvement. Give us time. We know we can make it work. And it did drive up. And the outstanding did achieve the money. So, yeah. Any other questions from the floor? Gentlemen. Sorry, thanks, Ploy. I, th I think the, um, all of the panel have echoed the tone that there is a difference between doing things right and doing the right thing. Sometimes that's subtle when it comes to the Care Quality Commission. One of the things that's frustrated me over the years is the behaviour of some inspectors to fail to have a willingness to engage in any help and support or in any sort of advisory capacity with providers around mending problems does the the panel as a general as a general view believe that there's an opportunity for the cqc to 
um, take an approach of help and assistance to, to open up an advisory section to properly engage with the, with the industry? Yeah, very much so. I, I'd echo what Claire said earlier on, which is it's too often adversarial. Yeah. And actually, um, we've got examples, a, a number of areas where we've seen providers, often housing associations with some sort of orphan LD services, get themselves into trouble and not have the capability to get themselves out of it. We've taken those services over. They've been inadequate. And what you then want is an, is an open and an honest dialogue with the CQC that says, you need to just give us a little bit of time. I'm going to turn this around. It's going to be better for everybody involved. These are these people's homes. Mm. And, there, and there's an unwillingness to do that. And, 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 and that's a disincentive to make the overall system better and more effective and yeah. serve the people it's caring for. I agree with you. But I, 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 CQC have a... This is me defending CQC, which doesn't often, often happen. CQC have a weird role. They are the enforcers. So they have to enforce. So when they go in, I mean, previously CQC were advisors as well as improving so those dialogues. At the point I left, CQC were very clear they had to be the enforcer. Whenever they went into a service, they were gathering evidence in case they had to take action. So if you're advising, then taking action, providers will turn around and say, but you advised us. So I think that's the challenge they do have. Internally, CQC, the, uh, inspectors are humans. They get nervous. Whenever there's a challenge, they do react negatively. So there's the human element as well. So it's very difficult for them to advise and have that role. Some of the old school are still doing that. Some of them will be advising. Some of them nurture the providers. But majority are too nervous to yeah. do that. But I think it's an inherent problem with the way that the regulatory framework by the CQC mm. is set up. They are enforcers, therefore they're not your friend. Yeah. Um, we have to ask a, a question then, you know, they're, they're taxpayer, with taxpayers pay for the regulator. Is that very enforcement, we are here to check your homework, we're not going to give you any advice, hints or clues. Um, and we're that means two things. One, in my mind, that means they have to be very, very consistent in their measures because that is, that is integral to enforcement, isn't it? We can't sort of shoot you here for one thing and not there for another mm. thing. So I think that places a, a, a burden or, or a responsibility on them. If you contrast that, though, with the RQIA, who also have enforcement powers, but what they will do is they will come, and if they find something, they will say, we need you to do X, Y, and Z. Now, I think there's an argument to say that that is too prescriptive, because then they come back and they only check X, Y, and Z. The rest of the care home in the Northern Ireland can be falling over, but if you've done those things, you're back in their good corner. Mm. So I think there's a balance, and I, I'm not sure that there's a, a perfect regulatory system. And as I say, as the most regulated woman, I get to have a view on this. But I do think there are aspects of the different regulatory systems that drive good behaviours in providers and drive towards a common goal, and there are some that actually act as barriers to, a, to, to, to those, those good outcomes. It's a very defensive model, isn't it? It is. I think that's uh, all we've got time for. Could everyone please uh, join me in thanking our panel? Thank you for listening to HIPod. If you found this episode interesting and want to hear more insights on the business of healthcare, you can subscribe via healthinvestor.co.uk.